Uh, If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 1 um, and... Uh, it is, it's, it's sort of my normal practice whenever we start a new sermon series um, to give a relative lengthy um, explanation of why we do what we do. Uh, because we're not just making this up as we go along. Uh, we actually, believe it or not, have a plan. Um, but it is our practice to preach through books of the Bible Um, it's normally I bounce between old and new Testament, try to give a steady diet. I try to change the length of the sermons and the, the series and the length of the books and the kind of writing. And so we're, we're conscious, we're aware of those, uh, changes, but the reality is we come to hear God we don't come to hear me. Um, and so one of the great benefits of, of preaching through books is it's a benefit to me, which is that on Monday morning, I don't have to walk into my study and go, okay, now what? There's a benefit to my family because I'm not still asking the same question on Saturday. There's also a benefit to all of us because we're subjects of God's revealed will and, and not my whims, not the latest, greatest idea, not whatever's been stuck in my craw all week or whatever I've been interested in or curious about. But the reality is um, we're subject to God and his revealed will. And so uh, it's our normal practice to preach through books, passage by passage, thought by thought, context by context. We do take breaks from time to time. We've done it um, several times over the years, and, and we'll do that again. It's not um, a hard and fast rule we never break, but that is the general uh, practice. And so we've just finished, I think it was 49 sermons in the book of Exodus. Um, and and I, should, I should, I suppose, um, a week or two ago, somebody asked, and it's not somebody in this room, not even somebody in Athens, actually. Uh, they heard I was going from Exodus to Hebrews, and the response was, do you think it's a good idea to go from something so long and heavy and weighty to something so, you know, long and heavy and weighty? <laughs> um, and normally that would be a perfect, and it is still a perfectly valid question. Uh, there are, I think, several benefits, several reasons why Hebrews makes perfect sense after Exodus. Um, one is because... Um, in many ways, preaching Hebrews after Exodus is a lot like just preaching Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy after Exodus. You kind of get the rest of the books of Moses in uh, the book of Hebrews. And so it's sort of like continuing through uh, that section of the Bible. Another reason, R.C. Sproul, uh, fairly famously, this might be in... Um, Kent Hughes's book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. I've been meaning to check this all week and I keep forgetting. Um, but but R.C. Sproul said um, that if he was stuck in prison or on a deserted island or isolated somewhere and could only have one book of the Bible, he would want the book of Hebrews. And the reason is because in Hebrews you have the Old and the New Testament. Uh, And so, again, in in light of, well, it sort of fits right after Exodus. Um, And so it makes sense, I think. The third reason is this. Um, Hebrews provides for us sort of a key 
that unlocks the Old Testament. I can give you a map, and if I don't give you that little box in the bottom right corner that explains the symbols and the road colors and measurement comparisons and things like that, that map is helpful, but it's not quite so helpful. In many ways, Hebrews is that key to sort of unlock and understand the Old Testament. It gives us, it tells us, it shows us how does the New Testament understand the Old? Well, I think it's reasonable to suggest that we as Christians should have the same understanding of the Old Testament that the, I don't know, New Testament has of the Old Testament. And so if Hebrews gives us that sort of key to unlock uh, our understanding of the old, then it makes sense uh, to go right on the heels of Exodus. And I will say, just for your own benefit, it will not be 49 sermons like it was in Exodus. Uh, as it stands right now, we should be done before Christmas. So there you go. Uh, that is a rather sort of lengthy explanation for why we do what we do. Uh, if you would, turn in your Bible to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. If you, if you didn't bring a Bible, I would suggest, A, that you make it a habit of doing so. B, there is one, if not under the chair in front of you, within arm's reach, arm's reach one way or another. If you don't own a Bible, take that one. It would, it would delight us greatly to send you home with a copy of God's. We actually have more. If we didn't have more, we'd still want you to take it, but we have more. And so it will be quickly replaced. If you come up, come up and say, can I have this? We will say, please, absolutely. And, and within a week, there'll be another one in its place. Um, and so it, it, it is our practice to stand normally. I mean, if we're preaching five chapters, we don't. But it's our practice normally to stand when we read, God, when we read God's word. So if you're able, would you please stand as we, sing, as we read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has, he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever Would you pray with me. Uh, we pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. And even as we uh, just sang a minute ago, uh, grant us grace, almighty Lord, to read and mark your holy word, to receive with meekness its truths, and to live by your holy precepts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I realize that um, where we live, at least here in the United States, being a Christian isn't, isn't illegal. Some of you may 
be inclined to think that it will be sooner or later. But that's not the point. The point is it is not illegal um, it, it, here in the U.S. to be uh, a Christian. It, it is, I think, it's fair to say it's becoming more and more difficult to, to bear the name of Christ, to, to live, to honor and glorify Christ, to be salt and light in the world. But um, it's maybe less fashionable, but we are not in danger of of necessarily losing jobs or, or family or, or lives at this stage of the game to, to follow Christ. Uh, it is perhaps in, in our world um, considered outdated, old-fashioned. Um, we can dismiss the Bible as, as merely a collection of fables or uh, just some random ideas that some random guys throughout a random set of centuries wrote and some random other people decided to put it all into one binding together. Um, and so why should we bother believing what it says? Um, th- that's probably our world. What if, though, tomorrow it did become illegal to follow Christ? Or what if you lived in one of the many countries where it absolutely is? Where, where turning to follow Christ, where, where trusting in him for your salvation actually means at least... You're likely to lose your job. You're likely to lose friendships and connections and relationships. You may very well be cut off by your own family members. And you may very well lose your life. You're going to ask a question. If you live in that kind of a world, you're going to ask yourself a question. And that question is this. Is it worth it? Is it really worth losing all of this to follow Jesus? Is it really worth losing all of these things for the sake of Christ? That's the question that the original audience was asking. Because that's exactly their world. They're facing persecution for Turning to Christ, not just from the Roman world and from the Roman emperor, but they're facing the same sort of persecution from their own Jewish background. Where it's, The writer is writing to predominantly Jewish Christians. And, and you know, just reading through the book of Hebrews, there's, a, like I said, a lot of Old Testament, a lot of back and forth between where the writer will say, well, remember this Old Testament thing? Now let me sort of draw a connection from that thing, that person that office, that whatever, to Jesus. And so these, these Jewish by birth, Jewish by family, now converted to Christ, are wrestling with the question, is this worth it? Not only do I face what I face from the Romans, but my own family has cut me off because they think I'm crazy, they think I'm nuts for for, I don't know, turning my back on our Jewish religion, our Jewish background. It's it's one thing to ask the question, is Christianity better, for lack of a better word, better than pagan religions, than false religions? But they're asking the question, is Jesus better than something true? Think about it. We're not denying the Old Testament. 
We're not saying the Old Testament isn't the Bible. We're not saying the Old Testament isn't God's word. These are people who were raised in this Jewish background and living according to the the commands and structures and, and practices and promises of the Old Testament. Now looking to Jesus, their question is, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus better than not that which is false, but that which actually is true? Now what? Now what do I do? What do you say to those people asking, is following Jesus worth it? That's why this letter is written. It, it really, it may not really be a letter. Um, it, it may be more like a, 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 a written sermon than a, than a true letter. Um, th- there's no real clear, direct audience I'm writing to you, individual, you, church. There's no stated author here. We'll deal with that in coming weeks. Um, it's more like a, a, a sermon. And notice it begins in verse 1 a little bit like Star Wars. Long ago... But notice it doesn't, it's not in a galaxy far, far away. I say that not just because it's, okay, it's funny, whatever. But because that actually matters. Right? I mean, the writer of Hebrews recognizes that God spoke long ago, but it's not in some foreign place. It's not in some far off land. It's not in a a galaxy far, far away that has no bearing on me. He recognizes that these are very real struggles for very real people in his day. These are people struggling with conflicts of life on account of turning to Christ for their salvation. And so the writer begins, look back then, long ago, way back when, God spoke in a variety of ways and quite honestly in a variety of times to the fathers. And you know this already. You can sort of mentally walk your way through the Old Testament and watch that happen. You can go back to to Genesis 3 and the cool of the garden right before the fall and and read that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and and spoke with Adam and Eve. And you get this sense that 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 was normal. Like that that wasn't the first time. It's so it's written as though that's just natural and and normal. You, You can jump ahead to God telling Noah, hey, look, build a boat. You can jump ahead to God promising to Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants like the sand on the shore, like the stars in the sky. You can jump ahead to which we just finished uh, Moses's own experience. We're told that. That God talked with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. And so we know we can, we can watch that unfold in the Old Testament. Even in our minds. Even sitting right here. We can walk through. Oh wait, there's, and there's prophets, right? And there's several prophets. Five or six of them at least. That begin with the phrase, the word of the Lord that came to, insert name here. And they are... They recognize that they've been called to an office that 
that they're called to speak God's word to his people or to Edom or to Nineveh. In the old days, back in the old days, the writer begins, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets and in a variety of other ways. But notice verse 2. But in these last days, now don't let that phrase throw you. See, when we hear last days, we jump to 20th, 21st century sort of modern world. Jesus is coming soon. I'm watching the news because I'm pretty sure I just heard them say blood moon. And I've got to pay attention. Wait a minute. Is this the one? Is this the blood moon? Like we're watching for all these signs when Jesus is going to come back. I don't think that, that that's the aim of the writer's point here. He's not using these last days to say that Jesus is coming soon. He's not using that phrase to look ahead to his future. He's actually using that phrase as a contrast with the past. God spoke in various ways at various times. And now he has spoken a different way. ever thought about the fact that um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'll say it again just for your benefit because it matters sort of in this context. Um, I did have one Old Testament professor who half tongue in cheek called the New Testament the appendix. And his point was that that the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Redeemer alone is so clear in the Old Testament that the New Testament is just sort of making it clearer to us. Um, and so he, he half-jokingly called the New Testament the appendix. And yet, when you finish Malachi, you feel like you haven't finished a book. Right? It would, it would be like reading Agatha Christie, and I have to spit when I say that. You know I can't stand Agatha Christie. Um, Poirot has access to information the reader doesn't get, and I think that's not fair. If you're going to write a whodunit, I should have the freedom to be able to figure out who done it, and she robs me of that. So, But it would be like reading an Agatha Christie novel without that last chapter where Poirot gathers the people and explains what happened. You'd finish the book and go, but I feel like something's missing. It leaves me wanting. It's like, you know, you're walking past somebody, you put your hand up for a high five and they ignore you. you. You feel like you've been left hanging at the end of the Old Testament. Where's, where's the king that God promised David who would sit on the throne forever? When you get that blank piece of paper between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you still don't know who that guy is. Where's the prophet that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 would come from among the people and speak God's word? That guy still isn't here. Where's the perfect priest, the faithful priest we're promised in 1 Samuel? Where's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Where's, where's the seed of the woman that we're told would crush the head of of the seed of the serpent way back in Genesis 3 
When you finish the Old Testament, that question, that promise remains unfulfilled. Yes, the Old Testament clearly teaches salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Messiah alone. But when the Old Testament finishes, that Messiah is still just promised. He's not there yet. That's what the writer of Hebrews means by these last days. Finally, that day has come. Finally, all that the Old Testament anticipated, finally, all the promises of the Old Testament that, that when you turn from Malachi to Matthew remain unfulfilled, here they are. He doesn't say in recent days. He doesn't say lately. He says in these last days. Why? Because there's not going to be another day. There's not going to be another way. There's not going to be another kind. In fact, notice the contrast in verses 1 and 2. See if I can create a chart in your head. Right? This is, this is where you're going to pit one thing against another. You've got this two-column chart in your head. Humor me. Pretend you can see it. In verse 1, long ago. Verse 2, these last days. Verse 1, many times, many ways. And in verse 2, it is implied just this once and this one way. Verse 1, to our fathers. Verse 2, to us. Verse 1, by the prophets. Verse 2, by his son. In other words, these words, the words these last days suggest that this is the last time God's going to speak. There was a bunch of ways and a bunch of times, and now this is the final time. And this is the final way. Jesus is the final way that God speaks. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. God speaking through the Son is better than God speaking through prophets or visions or dreams. The Son is better than the many times and many ways of verse 1. But there is one thing in your chart. Pull your chart back up. There is one thing that doesn't change from verse 1 to verse 2. It's only one thing that doesn't change from verse 1 to verse 2. It's the speaker. <clears throat> Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke. But in these last days, God spoke. The speaker doesn't change. Just because the Son is better than the Old Testament, just because the Son is better than the prophets, just because the Word spoken in the Son is better than all these other ways of the Old Testament, doesn't mean that God wasn't speaking then. And let's admit, there's a part of us that thinks, I mean, Moses got to kind of see God. Like, that would be cool. Right? Imagine, imagine being Abraham and waking up and seeing a, a smoking fire pot passing through the... That's God. Imagine being Abraham and realizing that, that 
angels showed up at your house. One of them, apparently, the uh, pre, a pre-incarnate form of, of Christ there. And you realize as they leave, I was in the presence of God. We think that would be kind of cool. And in fact, we think that would actually be better. There's a part of us that longs for, you know, but the dreams, and the visions, and the audible voice, and the face-to-face, that has to be better than what we have, right? The writer of Hebrews says, not even close. You have the Son. You live after the Father has sent the Son. That is better. And so he points us to the fact that, yes, he speaks in the old and in the new. The one thing that doesn't change is that God speaks. Whether through the prophet or through the son, it is God who does the speaking. Look, don't fall into the trap of thinking that the red words in your Bible are the most important words in your Bible. Don't give in to the temptation to go, well, the Old Testament's fine. New Testament's better. Gospel's better still. And the red words, those are the ones that really matter. See, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. That it's all for our good, for our for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's all for us. And this passage says, yes, God spoke through prophets many times, many ways. And now he has spoken through his son. And finally, he has spoken through his son. And this is the last time he will speak. The last way that he will speak. We should also be encouraged that we're better off living in these last days than in the days of visions and dreams and angels. You know, it would be so tempting to think that seeing God face to face would be better. The writer of Hebrews says, no, we actually are far better off still. The reality is when someone says to you, They've heard a message from God. When they come to you and say, look, God told me something new. You point them to this passage and say, I'm pretty sure he didn't. Because what could he add having already given you his son? Jesus is the final word. Jesus is the final prophet. Jesus is the better manner of speaking. And that's actually the the intent of this passage. The, the language, it's interesting because the Greek words used for, for word, um, for the things that are said, and, and, for, and the, the verbs and the nouns, they communicate the way of talking, not so much the content of them. Speaking by the Son is better than speaking in all of these other ways. Through the prophets, to the fathers, many times, And many ways. And so Hebrews reminds us. That Jesus is the final prophet. He's also the final priest. Notice 
the way verses 3 and 4 are written. He's actually made purification for our sins. He's become the sacrifice. He's done what the, the lambs and rams and oxen of the Old Testament couldn't do. They had to be sacrificed over and over and over again. Christ has come and once for all offered himself as the sacrifice. He's offered himself as the priest, the final priest. You know, I, I pointed out when we were working through Exodus and the building of the tabernacle, there was no chair. There was a table. There was a lampstand. There was the Ark of the Covenant that had the, the law. There's a basin for washing. There's all kinds of stuff in the, t- the tabernacle grounds. There was never a chair. Because the priest never got to sit down. He was never finished. The work never ended. And yet, where is Jesus now? Seated. On the throne. At the right hand of the Father. Why? Because His work is complete. Because He's the, the final prophet. He's the final Priest, And in fact, he's the final king. Notice again the language of verses 2 through 4. He's the creator. He's the heir of all things. The radiance of the glory of God. He is himself God in the flesh. He sits at the right hand of majesty on high. He's become more superior than any other created being All that's kingly language. All that is language that points us to a prophet, a priest, and a king who rules and reigns over all of creation. If you're going to ask yourself, is this worth it? Isn't that what you need to know? That Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament... Again, especially for this predominantly Jewish audience, they're looking at the Old Testament going, but I'm supposed to do these things. And the writer of Hebrews goes, hold on a second. Jesus has done those things for you. Jesus has become those things for you. Yes, you're supposed to offer a sacrifice. Guess what? Jesus was the sacrifice and he offered himself in your place. You merely need to look to him And trust in Him for your salvation. What we need to know when we're asking, is this all worth it? Is that Christ is absolutely all that God promised He would give and send. There may very well come a day when it costs us something. To follow Christ. There may very well come a day when when you could, you know, I don't know, get kicked out of the club or lose your job or or lose family members or or potentially even your life, I suppose. I suppose those are all possible things in the future that that we could come to a place where where it could cost us something to follow Christ. And the reality is this passage reminds us that it already cost the father his son. The father already sent his son to suffer and bleed and die and to fulfill all that the Old Testament anticipated. He's the message and the means of our salvation. He fulfills all that was foretold in the Old Testament. You know, when we ask, 
is it worth it? We're really asking a different question. That's not really the question we want to know. If we ask the question, is it really worth it following Jesus? That's not really the question we want to know. The question we're really asking is, is there some other way? Do I, is this the only way of salvation or is there another? Imagine, imagine there being five or six ways that we could be saved. Would you ever decide to sacrifice your child just so that you could make a seventh? Isn't that what the Bible's about? That Christ is the only way of salvation. That, that if there were dozens of other ways, if there was any other way, if there was one other way, you would never offer your son as a sacrifice to add, to create a new one. It makes no sense at all. And so this passage reminds us that as we are asking the question, is it worth it? Is there some other way? Is there yet another way of salvation? It points us to Jesus and says, look, everything that God has said already, he says finally and completely and in a fulfillment way in his son Jesus. Christ is our only hope of salvation. We must look to Him in faith and trust in Him for our salvation. And, and what's interesting here is Jesus isn't just better than all the other world religions. Jesus is actually better than the true religion of the Old Testament. He's better than everything else God Himself has already said. Look to Christ. Look to Him and Him alone for your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have sent Your Son as the final Word, as the, the greater Word. Not just final in time, but final in terms of authority. Because what more could possibly be added to the fact that Christ is both our message and our means of salvation. Would you strengthen our faith and trust in Him? Would you equip us to know and understand your Word as we study this book of Hebrews, as we seek to, to know and love and serve Christ all the more? Use this for our good and your glory, we ask in His name. Amen.